so this will be week number 30, which means this is broadcast number 30. And as of last Sunday, we passed the 16-hour mark. And therefore, over the next two Sundays, I would estimate we will conclude Second Corinthians. From start to end, this book has taken around six months. It's been a great blessing to look at Paul's epistle to the Corinthians and just to uh, remind ourselves, when we speak about churches in the first century, or specifically the Corinthians, we are speaking about Gentile homes, people's homes, not church buildings per se. The Jews took the synagogues and they became churches like buildings. But if you were a Gentile living in Greece or Turkey back in the first century, you would meet in somebody's home. So homes became places of worship places of fellowship, churches. So one more time, this will be week number 30, which means this is broadcast number 30. And for today, we will begin in 2 Corinthians chapter 13. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, look at verse 1 if you will. This is a third time I'm coming to you. In the mouth of two or three witnesses shall every word be established. Concerning chapter 12, verses 20 and 21, like unrepented sin or unrepentant sin in the camp in Corinth, which hadn't been dealt with. And yes, one more time, Christians can sin. They shouldn't sin, but they can sin. The Apostle Paul would say he was a chief of sinners. You wouldn't or you couldn't imagine someone like David Jeremiah saying that, could you? Or someone like John Hagee saying that, could you? Or someone like John MacArthur saying that, could you? But Paul did. I am, present tense, the chief of sinners. Romans chapter 7, what I want to do, I don't do. And what I shouldn't do, I end up doing. The spirit, reference, the new birth, is willing but the flesh, the flesh, the flesh, the old nature in saved people is weak. And that's why many times Christians are paralyzed. Christians are stuck. They want to do something and they do the complete opposite. This is a third time I'm coming to you. In the mouth of two or three witnesses shall every word be established. Back in the Old Testament, before somebody was convicted of a particular sin, you would need at least two or three witnesses. You couldn't just suggest somebody was guilty of a particular sin and say that was the case. You had to prove it and you would have to prove it with Two or three witnesses. And here Paul, as the spiritual father to the Corinthians, is en route. And he's got two or three witnesses. It could be Timothy. could be Titus. Two. I told you before and foretell you as if I were present the second time. And being absent now, I write to them which heretofore have sinned. And to all other that if I come again, I will not spare. Since ye seek a proof of Christ speaking in me, which to you would is not weak, but mighty in you. Think of the Old Testament, if you will. Think of Moses up against the apostate children of Israel. And every time the apostate children of Israel clashed with Moses, questioned Moses, in essence, they were clashing with the Lord. It's similar for Paul. Every time the Corinthians clashed with him, they were clashing with Christ. Because Christ would send Paul and God would send Moses. For today, unsaved people like to clash with Christians. 
Unsaved people like to get physical with saved people because they can't get to God. If they can't get to God, they get to his children. And they will get in your face. They will be very nasty. They will say things. They will insinuate things. They will gossip about you. They will slander you. They will attack you. I told you before and foretell you as if I were present the second time. And being absent now, I write to them which hitherto four have sinned. 12.21, 12.22, and to all other, that if I come again, I will not spare. Since ye seek a proof of Christ speaking in me. They were still questioning Paul's credentials. Is he the real deal? Is he a faker? Is this all a mirage? Which to you would is not weak, but is mighty in me. Paul could get the big stick out, spiritually speaking, of course. The Lord Jesus Christ went to the temple with a literal stick and drove them all out. He took a whip to them. But Paul doesn't want to approach the Corinthians in such a way. He wants to hold back. He wants to be gentle. What do they say? Softly, softly, catchy monkey. Since ye seek a proof of Christ speaking in me, verse 3, which to you would, is not weak, but is mighty in you. Not all of the Corinthians questioned Paul's authority. But a large minority did. And again, this goes back to the Corinthians being in two camps, the legalists and the liberals. Both are extremes. The same is true today. If you join a particular church, it's either going to be a liberal church or a legalistic church. It's very rare to find a church which goes the third way, which preaches down the middle, which will exegete. Romans 7 again, the two natures. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And at the same time, how I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. How you are to abstain from all appearances of evil. There's no excuse to do wrong. But at the same time, there's no excuse to pretend that you haven't done wrong. John says that if we say we haven't sinned, we make him a liar. This goes back one more time to Paul's ministry. This goes back to Paul's personal relationship with the Corinthians. We can't rule out jealousy. Most of what you see online, most of what you read online when it concerns ministry A versus ministry B is simply down to jealousy. I've been monitoring online squabbles for a long time. And nine times out of ten, it's down to jealousy. This guy's got more subscribers than I have. This guy has more comments than I do. And this is what these people are fighting over. Of course, it's personality as well. But most of the time, it's down to jealousy. The old nature. And here Paul is having to deal with those that were questioning him. Like Moses would back in the Old Testament. I'll discuss that in a few more moments. Look at verse 4 if you will. For though he was crucified through weakness. Yet he liveth by the power of God. For we also are weak in him. But we shall live with him by the power of God toward you. Meekness is never weakness. Christ was meek. Christ was humble. If you think of the conversation with the woman at the well, very cordial, quite gentle. Contrast that to the conversation with Nicodemus. Somewhat more direct, somewhat more abrupt. Contrast that to the conversations with the Pharisees. Contrast that to conversations with Zebedee's wife, the mother of James and John. Different conversations, different responses. For though he was crucified through weakness, absolutely, Yet he liveth, present tense, 
by the power of God, currently interceding up in the third heaven for us. For we also weak in him, present tense, but we shall live with him by the power of God toward you. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ that liveth in me. One more time, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me, O wretched man that I am. It's almost like a paradox, isn't it? If I wasn't a Bible-believing Christian, I would suggest that the struggle that I go through on a regular basis is down to a split personality. But I know better. I know that when I got born again, I was given Christ's seed. Christ lives inside of me. When I do well, he is to be credited. When I do wrong, I am to confess such to him. It's a paradox. It's like this. Who wrote Romans? You say Paul. Same question again. Who wrote Romans? The Holy Ghost. It's a paradox. You can't understand it. Paul wrote Romans with a physical pen, with a human pen, but the author was the Holy Spirit, the Holy Ghost. Christ lives in me. He lives inside of you. When you do well, he is to be praised. When you do wrong, you are to accept responsibility. Same kind of thing. Five. Examine yourselves, whether ye be in the faith. Prove your own selves. Know ye not your own selves, how that Jesus Christ is in you, except ye be reprobates. It's quite possible that the Corinthians didn't realize that Christ lived inside of them. How that could be possible, I don't know. Examine yourselves, whether ye be in the faith. You've got two interpretations to this. The first interpretation is the most general, and it says this, that you are to make sure you are saved. You are to make sure that you haven't received the, the, the grace of God in vain. You are to make your calling and election sure. You are to examine yourself. Like, are you really saved? The second interpretation is along the lines of, are you in fellowship with the Lord? Are you walking with the Lord? Are you bearing fruit? Are you a changed person? Not in the sense of sinless perfection. Let's not go down that route. We've just spent the last 30 weeks working our way through Second Corinthians. Nobody was perfect in this epistle. Nobody was perfect in the first epistle. The greatest Christian ever lived would lament over his battle with the old man. And I need to keep reminding people about this. Because if you go online, if you Google Lordship Salvation, for example, or if you Google Romans chapter 7, for example, or if you Google sins of the flesh like why do christians sin nine times out of ten you get a very pharisaical response and people will say well christians that sin and do a b and c are not saved and yet we spent what three sundays going through galatians chapter five and in galatians chapter five you've got 16 sins 16 sins that paul lists over half are not sexual sins and Paul says, if you practice those sins, you will not go into the kingdom of God. And most Christians either don't know that, don't believe it, or have completely overlooked it. They are so hooked on adultery. They are so hooked on fornication. They are so hooked on homosexuality. They're so self-righteous. And yet, 16 sins, 8, 9, are not sexual sins. And I spent three Sundays... Looking at that when we went to the judgment seat of Christ. Examine yourselves. This is addressed to everybody in the church in Corinth. And vicariously the church today. And one more time. 
This epistle is written to house churches in Corinth, modern-day Greece. Again, churches in the first century, Gentile churches in the first century met in people's homes. And when I finish 2 Corinthians, God willing, I will go to Philemon. And in Philemon, or as the Americans say, Philemon, it speaks about the church in thy house, a person's house. The Gentiles were in some ways at a disadvantage to the Gentiles. Excuse me, they were at a disadvantage to the Jews. And you say, why would that be? Well, the Gentiles had no structure before they were saved. The Jews had a structure. They had a temple in Jerusalem and they had synagogues all over the Roman Empire. And therefore, when those Jews got saved, their synagogues became churches. And James speaks about the assembly. James chapter 2, I think it is. And that term, assembly, if you check your Greek New Testament, is synagogue. Because the Jews had synagogues which became churches, whereas the Gentiles, those that got saved, didn't have that particular structure. They met in people's homes. Examine yourselves whether ye be in the faith. Jude says to contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. Ephesians chapter 4 speaks about one Lord, one baptism, one faith. Examine yourselves. Take the time to check yourself over. In the UK, around this time, if you are over 65 years old, your local uh, doctor surgery writes to you, and they say that you are due for a checkup. Or more specifically, a flu uh, injection, an anti-flu injection, because people get flu, pneumonia around this time of the year, and if you are over 65 years of age, it's free Shingles. in the UK. Shingles as well, and those that are over 65 in the UK uh, go to their surgery and have an anti-flu injection, and no, I don't agree with that. It's very dangerous. A lot of chemicals in such um, injections, but the point is this, the Local health services in Britain want to encourage people over 65 to examine themselves. Come for a checkup. If you are registered with a dentist, they like to see you every six months. At least every six months. Sometimes at least once a year. So if a dentist wants to examine you once a year or perhaps twice a year. If a doctor wants to examine you once a year concerning the anti-flu jab and other inoculations, why not check yourself out from a spiritual perspective? Examine yourselves whether ye are in the faith. Prove your own selves. How do you prove yourself? Well, number one, do you take Christ at his word? I mean, you say you are a Bible-believing Christian. Do you really take the Bible at face value? Do you apply it? There's a verse over in the Gospel of John where the Lord says that you'd have to be a doer of his word. I'm slightly paraphrased now, to get a blessing back in response. Paul says over in uh, the book of Romans that you need to be a doer of the word, not just a hearer of the word. Many times we pray for something and we just sit back and do nothing. You've got to pray and you've got to work. Faith and works. That's what James is all about. And unfortunately, a lot of biblical illiterates run to James chapter 2 and they mangle it. In fact, this past week I was watching Hank Hanegraaff on YouTube and Hank Hanegraaff converted to the Eastern Orthodox Church around 12 months ago and he was 
speaking in response to John MacArthur's video against his conversion, quote-unquote, to the Eastern Orthodox Church. And it was a very rambling response video. And most of the video which Hank Hanegraaff posted uh, surrounded and centered on James chapter 2. But James chapter 2 is dealing with justification in the sight of man, not justification in the sight of God. And this great Bible expert, apparently, 35 years in the ministry, nearly 70 years old, failed to correctly exegete James chapter 2. And if you didn't know your Bible particularly well, and had you stumbled across that video, you would have come to the conclusion that we are saved by our faith and our works. Impossible. What can you offer the Lord? Almighty God has everything. He owns everything. What can you really give him? What can you offer him? Nothing, of course. Only when you are saved can you give him your bodies. Can you give him your heart to your life? But before you are saved, you can't give him anything. And therefore to watch someone like Hank Hanegraaff, 35 years in the ministry, running one of America's most prestigious apologetical ministries, and yet James chapter 2, he couldn't exegete it. He took it out of context, and like I say, it was a very rambling video. It was pitiful, just pitiful to watch. And I thought to myself this, what's interesting with someone like Hanegraaff is, around the time of his conversion, quote-unquote, to the Eastern Orthodox Church, which rejects faith in Christ alone, which prays to Mary and statues, which says only their church can interpret the Bible, around the time of his conversion to a false religion, he's diagnosed with cancer. Isn't that interesting? Examine yourselves, verse 5, whether ye be in the faith. Check out you're saved. Make sure you've believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. Make sure you're trusting in his death, burial, and resurrection, and nothing else. It's as simple as that. You can't miss it. Number two, make sure you're walking with the Lord. Do you confess your sins every night before you go to bed? I do. You should do that. You should confess your sins every night before you go to bed. The sins of commission, sins of omission. Prove your own selves. Put your faith into action. Do something. That phone call comes from the doctor's surgery. That phone call comes from your local dentist. You have to answer the phone, don't you? You have to answer the call. You have to make an appointment, don't you? You have to go to your local dentist, don't you? You have to go to your local doctor's surgery, don't you? They won't come to you. You have to go to them. Same sort of thing here. No, you're not your own selves. How that Jesus Christ is in you, along with the Father and the Spirit, except ye be reprobates. That word reprobate is an old English word. It appears seven times in your King James Bible, six of which are found in the New Testament. The term reprobate, in a nutshell, means to be anti-God, like extremely against God or rejecting God. One um, statement I saw this week concerning the term reprobate will be somebody who is a perpetual sodomite. If you go to Speaker's Corner any given Sunday afternoon and if you have the confidence to open your mouth there about the Lord Jesus Christ, you will see what a reprobate looks like. They will get in your face. They will try and scratch your eyes out if they can. They will try and trip you up, sometimes uh, spiritually, sometimes physically. I caught a clip not long ago of 
uh, Jay Smith, an American who lives in Britain, an expert on Islam, and he was at Speaker's Corner not very long ago, and he got up with some of his uh, colleagues, and they were reading from different Qurans to show Muslims that the Quran has been changed. In fact, there are 80 translations of the Quran, and they attack us for all of our translations, and yes, we have far too many, of course, but they have 80 translations and I saw this clip of Jay Smith with his colleagues reading from five or six Qurans. And that crowd turned very nasty. And to cut a long story short, he had to pack up early. And as he was leaving Speaker's Corner with his colleagues, they were following him out. And one Muslim guy was right in his face, trying to grab the Qurans from Smith. And Smith stood his ground. Nothing serious came out of it. But it came very near. I saw one clip of a former Muslim at Speaker's Corner giving his testimony and the crowd turned very nasty. They pushed him off his steps. The police were called. They eventually arrived and they said, what's going on here? And this man explained what was going on. They weren't interested. And they pretty much said this, that it's your own fault. You shouldn't be here or your views are not PC. You brought it on yourself. But my point is this, they are reprobates. Religious, very much so like the crowd that killed Christ. They were very religious. They were theologians. It sounds somewhat strange to say that theologians killed Christ, but they did. It wasn't the common people. It was the religious elite. It was the Pharisees, the scribes. That term scribe means Bible teacher, Bible expert. And it was that crowd that turned on our blessed Savior. How that Jesus Christ is in you, except ye be reprobates. Yes, of course it was possible that some of the Corinthians were not saved. I wouldn't argue against that. But most of what Paul says in both epistles is written from the perspective that they are actually saved. Because Paul met these people. Paul went door to door. He stood in street corners. It says over in Acts that he would speak to people in the market every day. If you do personal discipleship, if you speak to people, I mean face to face... If you have a relationship with people over a few weeks or months, you get to know people very well. And therefore, Paul is writing with a very heavy heart. He knows that such people are saved. And yet at the same time, it's possible that a crowd have crept in and are not saved, are reprobates. And again, the meaning of reprobate simply means somebody who is extremely anti-God, hates God. If you look at the BBC, if you watch anything on the BBC, or if you read any of their articles, or if you watch any of their news programs, nine times out of ten, they will invite people who are anti-God onto their platforms to discuss political and current affairs. And they too are reprobates. I saw a debate maybe a few months ago on a program on the BBC and you had one character there, a well-known British journalist who writes for a conservative, quote-unquote, newspaper. And he was uh, debating a particular character who was a pseudo-Christian, shall we say. And the, sub the, the, uh, the subject came up of same-sex marriage. And these two went back and forth, locked horns. And I thought, two unsaved people locking horns over subjects that they don't really understand. But the point is this, the journalist writing for a conservative quote-unquote newspaper was a reprobate. He was a bibliophobe. 
anti-God, anti-Christ. And yet nobody challenged him. Nobody said to him, you are biblophobic. You are anti-God. You are anti-Christ. You are full of hate. You are a bigot. And yet you know perfectly well that if I was on such a platform, or if you were on such a platform, if anybody who is King James, or you know, is a King James Bible believer, you know, would find themselves on such a program, we'd be labelled as a bigot, and we'd be booed off the stage. This is the world that we, you know, that we now live in. But the point is this. Paul wants the Corinthians to examine themselves. He wants them to take the time out to stop talking and start listening. Check out themselves. Are they saved? Yes or no. Are they walking with the Lord? Yes or no. Are they holy? Yes or no. Is there any proof that they are regenerated? Yes or no. It's as simple as that. Six. But I trust that ye shall know that we are not reprobates. He now includes himself into the conversation. It's like what John would say. If we confess our sins. John is around 90 when he wrote First John. He doesn't say if you confess your sins. He says, if we, he will include himself, confess our sins. There's no sinless perfection in the New Testament. But I trust that you shall know that we are not reprobates. Because if Paul was a reprobate, then his converts would be reprobates as well. If you think of a Jehovah's Witness, for example, or a Mormon missionary, for example, you've got unsaved people going out into their communities making converts and they do most of the jehovah's witnesses that you see on the streets became jehovah's witnesses due to people knocking on their doors and follow me through this logic for a few moments if you have an unsaved jehovah's witness and they are unsaved they reject the new birth going around picking up converts and they do you've got one group unsaved due to being witnessed to by an unsaved person same is true of the Catholic Church. You've got priests baptizing new people, confirming new people, going through the rigmarole of trying to incorporate someone into their system. Nobody's saved, of course. The priest isn't saved. The parishioners are not saved. The Jehovah's Witnesses are not saved. Their converts are not saved. The Mormon missionaries are not saved. And their converts are not saved. So here Paul is saying quite simply this, that if he was a reprobate, because they were implying he was, then by logical conclusion, his converts would be reprobate as well. You can't get around it, can you? Seven. Now I pray to God that ye do no evil, not that we should appear approved, but that ye should do that which is honest, though we be as reprobates. Now I pray to God that ye do no evil, not that we should appear approved, but that ye should do that which is honest, Though we be as reprobates. I gave you the verse from uh, uh, Peter. I think it's First Peter chapter 3 from memory. Where Paul says, whatever you do, don't suffer as an evildoer, a busy body, or even a murderer. Going back to the awful reality that Christians can do terrible things. I saw a documentary. In fact, I saw a few documentaries uh, four or five months ago of Christians, mainly in America, that fell foul of the Lord. And I won't go into details because it'd be quite shocking if I was to try and, or if I was to tell you what their crimes were. But some of those uh, Christians in America were leaders of churches 
I mean Baptist churches, I mean Evangelical churches, I mean Episcopalian churches, I mean Roman Catholic churches, but let's just focus on the non-Catholic churches. And one of those pastors of a well-known church in America, like a Baptist church, like a conservative fundamentalist Baptist church, was convicted of murder. And this pastor murdered two people. And he's now doing life in jail somewhere in America, and you might say, well, clearly he was never saved to begin with. I wouldn't be so quick to make such a judgment. It's like King David. People say uh, David was a great sinner, yes, and he was also a great repenter. Look at Solomon. Look at all of the kings in the Old Testament. And I won't get into the two natures anymore, because you know we could spend hours discussing that. But my point is this. Christians do sin. The Corinthians did sin. You had one guy messing around with his biological mother. You had another crowd suing each other in the courtroom. And again, go back to Galatians chapter 5 sometime. Read it. You've got 12, 13, 14, 15, around 16 sins that Paul speaks about. And over half are not sexual. And Paul says, if you practice those things, you will not go into the thousand-year reign of Christ. You will forfeit your right. In fact, it's not even a right. It's a privilege to rule and reign with the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 8 and I'll close. For we can do nothing against the truth. But for the truth. You can't overthrow the truth. It said over in uh, uh, Timothy. That if we believe not. He remains faithful. If we deny him he cannot deny us. He can't deny what he knows. He can't deny himself. Paul said over in Romans chapter 8. That there's no condemnation. To those that are in Christ. He says, no one or anything, nothing or no one can separate us from the love of God because we are in Christ Jesus our Lord. So what you've got here are eight verses written by the Apostle Paul to those in Corinth trying to deal with those that were attacking him. Because one more time, an attack on Paul was indirectly an attack on Christ. An attack on Moses was indirectly an attack on God. And what Paul could have done, and I'll discuss this next Sunday, was call fire down from heaven in a spiritual sense. Had he wanted to, he could have really gone to town on the Corinthians. If you think about Moses back in the Old Testament, he comes down from uh, Mount Sinai. You've got the children of Israel guilty of idolatry. That's the main sin in scripture. And Moses, like Paul, is devastated. And Moses, like Paul, says, okay, who is with me? And the Levites jump to their feet. They stand side by side with Moses. But thousands don't stand with Moses. And the Lord steps in and kills 14,000. As the narration goes on, thousands more are killed, directly and indirectly. Down the line, Moses would fall foul of the Lord and was chastised and forfeited his right to go into the promised land. Paul the Apostle was taken to the third heaven. He comes back almost blind. He can't see really. And that's what I think Galatians chapter 3 is all about. How those in Galatia were prepared to give Paul their own eyes. I'm not saying Paul sinned. I can't find any explicit sin in the life of Paul. I can with Moses. But I can't with Paul. And yet Paul would tell you from Romans 7 how wicked he was. He didn't say, I've conquered the old nature, I am now perfect. But my point is this, Moses would indirectly 
kill evil and unbelieving Jews. And had Paul wanted to, he could have done the same sort of thing. In fact, just quickly go to 1 Corinthians. I've got a few moments. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, because I think a lot of times we overlook Paul as uh, being a sort of type of Moses. And we think of Jesus Christ as meek and mild, and we don't always like to think of Jesus Christ getting the stick out, getting the whip out, or coming back, uh, Revelation 19, and chopping people's heads off. We don't like that kind of thing, do we? It's very rarely spoken about. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, look, if you will, at verse 3, please. For I verily, as absent in body, but present in spirit, have judged already, as though I were present concerning him that hath so done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when ye are gathered together, and my spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, to deliver such and one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Going back to the incest incident. Take that person, kick him out of the church, let the devil work him over, so that his flesh, not his spirit, his flesh, not his soul, will be destroyed. John Calvin took this passage and used this passage as justification for the murder of Michael Servetus, a non-Trinitarian Spaniard, and Calvin made a huge mistake. This doesn't allow anybody to kill anyone else. In the context, this is excommunication. In the context, this has taken somebody out of a first century church and putting them back into the world system. And Calvin would twist this, and as a result, a innocent man was murdered. Michael Servetus, going back to my earlier comments, that the good and the great many times will twist scripture. It says over in the book of Jude how uh, the aged aren't always wise. And Hannah Graf, another clear example of somebody over 30 years in ministry, quote-unquote, and yet cannot correctly exegete James chapter 2, and as a result, teaches a faith and works gospel, which as a result, I believe, has resulted in such a person being diagnosed with cancer. That's how serious the Lord takes this type of thing. He will put up with uh, his children sinning, and he will on many occasions sit back and allow his children to suffer the consequences of their sins. But when their sins start to affect other people, like Servetus, and Calvin would die very young, 54, 55, God's judgment fell on John Calvin. And God's judgment, I think, is falling on Hank Hanegraaff. Because Hanegraaff still has a huge audience, a massive audience, and people like him, a closet Catholic, no doubt a secret Jesuit with links to Rome, and now the Eastern Orthodox Church is being chastised. But anyway, we will close there from 2 Corinthians 13. But my point one last time is that Paul took that man, 1 Corinthians 5, put him out of the fellowship, the devil worked him over, and that guy came back into fellowship with the Lord. Which again, proves my point that you cannot lose your salvation. Because had it been possible to lose it, he would have lost it. And Hebrews says that if we sin willfully, there's no more sacrifice for sins, but a fear for falling away of judgment, so on and so forth. 
And the holiness people like to quote that piece of scripture to say that if you sin willfully after you, you are saved, you are lost and forever lost. And yet they failed to explain the guy in Corinth who came back into fellowship with the Lord. So there you are, eight verses from 2 Corinthians 13. And next week, God willing, we will return and conclude this epistle from verse 9. Well, this will be week number 31, which means this is broadcast number 31 and this will be the final study looking at the epistle to the corinthians second corinthians it's been a fascinating study for me over the past 31 weeks as of now we have accumulated 18 hours of material and it's always worth reminding ourselves that first and second corinthians would be aimed at carnal christians and there were strands of legalists in such a church but for the most part If you come across a carnal church, for the most part, they tolerate sin. Contrast that to the Galatians, which were very much into legalism, like holy days, like keeping the Sabbath, or the Sabbath as we would pronounce it. And during a future study, I will be looking at the Jewish feast days. But like I say, we've been uh, very busy over the past 31 weeks. We've covered a lot of ground. We were able to discover the judgment seat of Christ from chapter 5. And the Bible says how we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ concerning saved people. The great white throne judgment is for the most part for unsaved people. Of course, there will be saved people at the judgment seats or the great white throne judgment, I should say, uh, those that died in the tribulation, those that died in the millennium, like saved people who will be judged at the great white throne judgment. But when we speak about the judgment seat of Christ, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and also Romans chapter 14, we are speaking about saved people being judged for their works, not their salvation. A lot of Christians get confused over the two and they seem to think that if you don't live a particular way after you are saved, you lose your salvation, go to the judgment seat of Christ and are sent to hell forever. Ridiculous, I know, but unfortunately most people hold to such a belief so from last sunday which was broadcast uh, number 30 week number 30 we arrived at uh, verse 8 and therefore for today the final broadcast the final week being week number 31 let's begin if we may in verse 9 for we are glad when we are weak and you're strong and this also we wish even your perfection not sinless perfection I really do wish that it was possible that when people get saved, they were now completely sinless. But it's not possible. Now, your practical standing, as far as God is concerned, is sinless perfection. But your practical state could be very different altogether. If you think of that account back in the Old Testament, when uh, Balaam was called on to curse the children of Israel, and he gets... uh, a vision of the children of Israel in their camps, like two million of them. And you know perfectly well that there was a lot of sin in the camp. I mean, a lot of sin back in the Old Testament. And yet the Lord says to Balaam, I don't see any sin. As far as I'm concerned, they are my people and they are good to go. And you say, what's that all about? Imputation. That's a picture of grace. The Lord isn't going to stand uh, or he's not going to align himself to a prophet who does what he does for money. And so it actually... They're just as lost as you are, or they're just as wicked as you are, or they're just as wicked as the Canaanites or the uh, Jebusites or uh, any other group back in the Old Testament. He won't do that. 
He will never take sides against you. He'll always be on your side. So when I look at verse 9, it says, For we are glad when we are weak, and ye are strong. And this also we wish even your perfection. Like, don't be double-minded. The Corinthians were saved. Let's never forget that. They were saved. They were born again. And it's like I've said before, you can't be any more justified than you already are. Now, you can be more sanctified than you might be. You can be more consecrated than you should be. You might be more sold out to the Lord. Absolutely. But when it comes to justification, when it comes to being saved, being forgiven, you can't be any more saved, any more forgiven than you already are. So here, Paul wants the Corinthians to push on. There's been splits, there's been divisions, there's been denominational cliques. Going back to the first epistle to the Corinthians, they've dealt with the uh, incest incident. He's put down this mutiny. He's silenced the mouths of these Judaizers. And you see within five minutes, don't you, what a diverse church it was. People think that when a person gets saved, it's all uh, good. There aren't any problems. We don't have any disagreements. We don't quarrel. We're all on the same page. Far from it. The church is like a family. And if you are in a family or if you are part of a family, you know perfectly well what I'm speaking about. Look at verse 10, if you will. Therefore, I write these things being absent, lest being present, I should use sharpness according to the power which the Lord hath given me to edification and not to destruction. Sharpness of tongue. And it's fair to say that if you are a Bible teacher, if you are in a position of authority, if you are a leader in a church, or if you do outreach work, can you take people onto the streets with you? Sometimes you will be perceived as being perhaps over the top. They do say that uh, familiarity breeds contempt. And this is very true. Therefore, I write these things being absent, lest being present, I should use sharpness according to the power which the Lord hath given me to edification and not to destruction. Going back to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, take that wicked person, put him out of the church, let the devil work him over, put the thumb screws on him, as we would say, to cause him to repent, to cause him to come back into fellowship with the Lord. Going back to what I said last Sunday, that if you could lose your salvation, like if you sinned willfully, and everybody has sinned willfully, sins of omission, sins of commission, according to such people, you couldn't be saved. You couldn't be forgiven for backsliding. And they go to Hebrews 3, Hebrews 6, Hebrews 10, and they take those passages which are aimed at Jewish Christians, incidentally, not Gentile Christians, and they put that on people who are carnal and cause such people to just have a spiritual collapse. And they ask themselves this, have I lost my salvation? I've sinned willfully, again, sins of omission, sins of commission. According to such people, I've lost my salvation. Of course, that's not what Hebrews is all about. Hebrews is simply about Jews coming to Jesus and staying with Jesus, not going back to the law, like John 666. And many of his disciples walked no more with him. But unfortunately, a good number of Christian leaders today are, can I say, biblical illiterates. So I look at verse 9. And I see the word perfection, like in one's mind, in one's daily activities. Don't be double-minded. Uh, don't forget you've already been purged from your old sins, your old uh, lifestyle, as it were. And I look at uh, verse 10. I see uh, sharpness. I see edification. I see destruction. Now, like I said last Sunday, Paul could quite easily have called fire down from heaven. He could have purged the churches in Corinth had he wanted to. He went to the third heaven. 
he would raise the dead, he would do miracles, he was privy to a lot of information that we're not privy to today, and yet, like the Lord Jesus Christ, that wouldn't be his approach. Moses comes down from Mount Sinai, and he's aware that there is some kind of a commotion in the camp. Aaron, Israel's first high priest, has gotten tied up with idolatry, the main sin in both testaments. And he says, who is with me? And all the Levites stand with Moses and the rest stay put, thinking they can ride this out, thinking, uh, who is this man uh, ruling over us? We have no king, but one Caesar. And thousands are put to death. Thousands. That was Moses. Uh, that was his uh, authority, if you will, over the children of Israel. And I think Paul, had he wanted to, could have done something along those lines. If you think of Ananias and Sapphira, they are caught lying to Peter. Acts chapter 5, Peter summons the husband, asks him to explain himself. He lies through his teeth. And Peter says, you haven't lied to me, you've lied to God. Now in the context of Acts chapter 5, the Holy Spirit is mentioned. And that's a good uh, verse to show people that the spirits of God is God the third member of the Godhead. And Ananias, like I say, doesn't come clean. He's given the chance to repent, like Adam and Eve were back in Genesis, and he stands his ground. And this guy just drops down dead. The servants of Peter arrive, they pick him up, take him outside, and they bury him like six feet under. The wife comes around some hours later, Sapphira, and he gives her the chance to come clean as well, like the Lord would do with Eve. And she stands firm, lies through her teeth, and she's dropped down dead as well. And they take her out and they bury her in the yard. So you've got a picture in the New Testament, a very clear picture in the New Testament of what could happen had the Lord wanted it to happen. It is fair to say that Peter was perhaps somewhat shocked to see the Spirit of God kill two people right in front of his eyes. But I don't think it's a stretch to suggest that had Paul wanted to, he could have just cut down this group of reprobates or legalizers, uh, Judaizers, legalists i should say but he chose not to do so if you think of that account from uh, galatians galatians chapter 3 he says this paul says whoever those people are that are going around i'm slightly paraphrasing here uh doing what they are doing i wish they were cut off now you know you know if you are a bible believer that the word or the term cut off means death it says over in daniel that the messiah will be cut off but not for himself the term cut off nearly always means death. And Paul is calling for the false teachers, Galatians chapter 3, to be cut off. Could you imagine somebody saying that today? Could you imagine the Archbishop, the Archbishop of Canterbury saying that today? Or the Cardinal of Westminster saying that today? Or anybody about the guy who runs Spurgeon's Tabernacle coming out and saying, I wish these people, and he names a load of people, would be cut off. Of course you wouldn't. You couldn't possibly imagine it. So Paul has the option, had he wanted to, to destroy people, but that's not going to be his approach, like the Lord Jesus Christ would make the case that he didn't come to destroy men's lives, but to save men's lives. And that is something which we need to be mindful of. Look at verse 11, please. Finally, brethren, farewell. Be perfect. Be of good comfort. Be of one mind. Live in peace, and the God of love and peace shall be with you. He calls them brethren. All that he's been through, Everything that he has experienced, the highs and the lows, and this epistle must have been very bittersweet for the Apostle Paul. Never once did he say, you're unsaved. Never once did he teach lordship salvation. 
Finally, brethren. Now, of course, in the context, this epistle, along with uh, 1 Corinthians, would be aimed at the elders in Corinth, the leaders. His epistles were always written to the leaders, not the pastor. Okay, exclude Timothy 1 and 2, exclude uh, Titus, exclude Philemon, which I will look at next Sunday. But his epistles were nearly always aimed at the elders, the brothers that were running the churches. And like I said last week, out of people's homes. Be perfect. Feeding back to verse 9, perfection. If you think of that text from uh, Matthew uh, chapter 5, it says to be perfect as your father in heaven is perfect. Now, again, you know in yourself you can't be perfect in the sense of sinless perfection. Yes, when you're born again, like I say, God gives you Christ's imputation. Uh, He gives you uh, Christ's righteousness and your sins are imputed to Christ. Okay, we understand that. We know that when God looks at a sinner today, he sees the Lord Jesus Christ. He doesn't see us. Going back to Balaam, found back in the book of Numbers. I can't see any sin in the camp, but Lord, they're wicked Jews. There's uh, idolatry in the camp. There's this, there's that in the camp. The Lord says, I still can't see it. Where is it, Balaam? It's over there. I can't see it. There's no sin in the camp. What a great picture of imputation. But from a practical perspective, like Moses, uh, treating the rock with contempt, like Miriam, questioning Moses' authority, like Aaron, making that golden calf and causing the children of Israel to fall into idolatry. Such sins were obviously uh, visible for the kids of Israel, the children of Israel, to see. They were visible for the Lord to behold. But when it comes to enemies of the Lord, as I say, God will never take the side of an enemy against his own children. So when it says about... uh, Be of one mind, live in peace, be perfect, and the God of love and peace shall be with you. It's back to make sure you are saved, make sure you haven't received the grace of God in vain, and above all, to stop going back over dead works from Hebrews chapter 6. Stop talking about repentance. Stop talking about baptism. Stop talking about this. Stop talking about that. If you're saved, you're saved. Praise the Lord. Finally, brethren, farewell, be perfect, be a good comfort. That's very reminiscent to 1 Thessalonians concerning the rapture of the church. Be of one mind. You've got the mind of Christ, so use it. Stop allowing uh, these denominational squabbles to get the better of you. Live in peace. A very important part of verse 11. Live in peace. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Live in peace. Brethren, you're saved. Brethren, the Saviour has been successful. Brethren, your names are written in heaven. So stop all this internal agony, like legalism or lordship salvation. And the God of love and peace shall be with you. And that's what we all need, going back to a closer walk with the Lord. Going back to a stronger relationship with the Lord. Twelve. Greet one another with and holy kiss. Now for today, the term holy kiss, I guess, would be the equivalent of a good old handshake all around. And yet, if you think of the account from Exodus, which I'm currently reading through for a future message, it speaks about Moses coming down from the Mount, uh, Exodus chapter 3, and he sees Aaron, and it says he kissed his brother, a picture of intimacy, a picture of how are you, my brother? 
I guess our continental cousins have got this down to a fine tea, like the French, the Italians, the Spanish. When I was in Barcelona two years ago, uh, an elderly woman came over to me. She saw the banner and she came over and we spoke for a few minutes. And as the conversation concluded, she wanted to give me a kiss in the cheeks. And this is very common, of course, in Europe, but it's not so common in Britain. And being a typical Brit, somewhat reserved, not very demonstrous, I said, well, just shake my hand. That's going to be okay. And she was okay about it. She wasn't too, uh, you know, disappointed or too uh, offended by it. And she sort of smiled and through broken English, she said, no problem. And we, you know, we shook hands and we parted on good terms. But for the first century church, for the Gentiles and the Jews, they had a much uh, stronger sense of intimacy. They would show warmth. They would show care and emotion in ways that we probably don't. When I say we, I mean the Brits. The Brits are very reserved. It's not that we are standoffish. It's just that we are more reserved. I guess we are more of a uh, stiff upper lip, as they say. Greet one another with an holy kiss. So we could say the equivalent today would be a good old handshake, a double handshake. If you watch the politicians, they like to give people a double handshake or a pat on the back. But for the first century church, it was far more than just a handshake. It was a kiss and a cuddle, uh, left cheek, right cheek. How are you, my brother? How are you, my sister? Or, you know, you've had a tough week. Let me give you an embrace. Something as innocent as that. And yet we've lost that, I think, today. 13. All the saints salute you. Saints. Saint. All the saints salute you. Greet you. When we speak about saints, this is a very common term in the New Testament. We are speaking about saved people, members, citizens of New Jerusalem, saints, Old Testament saints, New Testament saints, church age saints. On top of that, we are referred to as sons of God from First John. Unfortunately, we have a group today and for the last several centuries that have gone around telling people that they have the right to make such and such a saint. The most recent saints in the Catholic Church would probably be Teresa or John Paul II. And once a Catholic is made a saint, that means that Catholics can pray to such a person and they can ask for help for this and for that. And of course, the problem with that is when you start praying to a dead person, you are praying to the devil. And don't be too surprised. The devil responds. All the saints salute you. Why? Well, because you're saved. Verse 13, brethren. Verse 9, I want your perfection. Verse 10, due to edification, not to destruction. Middle part of 11, be perfect, be of good comfort, be of one mind, live in peace. And the God of love and peace shall be with you. That term, the God of love, as far as I can recall, is only found here. It does say over in First John that God is love. But here, the term, the God of love, is only found here. And his love is conditional. His love is conditional, first and foremost, on people receiving his son. Outside of the Son of God, outside of the Son of God's atoning for the world, outside of the atonement, there's no love per se, or there's no love that will save you. There's no way for, for you to be pardoned or have your sins overlooked outside of the grace of God. Look at verse 14 on the close. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Ghost be with you all. Amen. So this epistle would open with the Trinity. 
the Godhead from chapter 1, and it concludes with the Godhead with the Trinity. Lord Jesus Christ, love of God, Holy Ghost. And unfortunately, there seems to be a movement, a reoccurring movement, which is springing up concerning people that are departing from a belief in the Trinity. I was told this morning that there's a well-known preacher in America, and I haven't yet had a chance to check out this for myself, who doesn't believe in the Trinity. And this well-known street preacher in America is doing the rounds, going all over America, and he's speaking to a lot of people. And in his mind, the idea of the Trinity is non-scriptural. And the problem with that belief is, number one, if you teach that, you are a heretic. Number two, if you reject the Trinity, you are now in the camp of the cults. Could be a Jehovah's Witness, could be a Mormon, it could be a Muslim. And the thought of somebody offering themselves as a Christian, and yet being in the camp or camps of false religions would horrify me. But I look at the word grace in verse 14, God's righteousness at Christ's expense, going back to imputation, going back to your standing in the Lord versus your state in the Lord. And it's so important that we never lose sight of that. One more time, when you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are saved. You are pardoned from all your past, present and future sins. God looks at you, he sees Jesus Christ. Your sins, and there are many, and there will be many, that you will commit throughout the rest of your life, will be imputed to the Lord Jesus Christ. You can't really comprehend that. That's a supernatural act, going back to the wonderful truth that we are already reigning up in the third heaven with the Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians chapter 2. But your practical standing, like David, like Solomon. In fact, Solomon would have a thousand wives, got caught up in idolatry, and died before he was 60 years old. People say he wasn't saved. Why would you say that? Why would you say that Solomon wasn't saved? People say, well, Saul certainly wasn't saved. King Saul was a wicked king, and he was consulting uh, witches. Well, he would consult one witch, that is true. And he was weak, and he was this, and he was that. He couldn't possibly be saved. And yet there's a verse back in uh, 1 Samuel, which speaks about uh, Samuel coming up out of the grave, the pit, call it what you will. And Saul recognizes Samuel. Samuel recognizes Saul. And Samuel says to Saul, Tomorrow you will be with me and your sons. And that verse seems to get overlooked by a lot of holy uh, or I should say super-duper, holier-than-thou Christians. And of course, you know perfectly well from Luke 16, 19 to 31, that when people died pre the arrival of the Lord Jesus Christ, they all went into the ground. And there were two compartments. Abraham would be in one compartment, and the rich man would be in another. And Abraham says, you can't come to us, and we cannot, we cannot uh, come to you. There's no way of going from A to B. Once you die, your eternal abode is fixed. So for Samuel... To say that to Saul, today you will be with me and your sons. And we know that Samuel was saved, and perhaps Jonathan was saved. Isn't really difficult for me to put two and two together and come up with four and say, well, therefore, Saul must have been saved. In spite of himself, not because of himself, like you, like me, like all of us. We're all saved in spite of ourselves, not because of ourselves. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, our blessed Savior, and the love of God being the Father, of course, and the communion, meaning fellowship, of the Holy Ghost, third member of the Godhead, be with you all. Amen. I learn many things as I wrap up this final uh, study 
from Second Corinthians. I know many things that no matter who you are, where you are, what you do, if you belong to the Lord, you will always belong to the Lord. You will get caught up in all sorts of painful problems, most of which are your own fault. It is absolutely fair to say that we are our own worst enemies. Uh, people say, well, the devil made me do it. No, you did it yourself. I think it's absolutely fair to say that for today, for the 21st century, probably 95% of what we do wrong, we do wrong because of our own sinful natures. The devil doesn't really need to do much to work us over. You go back to the 15th, 16th, the 17th century, and you read some of those accounts of what those saints were up against. Very upright people, very holy people. They weren't messing around with sin like we do today. They had an old nature. Of course they did. And I made the case during my Cromwell uh, video that George Fox was convinced that Oliver Cromwell was more focused on the crown uh, than Christ. And these two gentlemen would have a pretty civil dialogue. But what I really should have added to that statement was that it wasn't so much George Fox that was questioning Cromwell's salvation. It was followers of George Fox. They were convinced that Oliver Cromwell wasn't saved. And of course, they would have failed to have understood the two natures in the believer, something which we are all uh, prone to struggle with. And the last word from uh, verse 14 will be amen, meaning let it be or so shall it be. So I want to thank you for joining me over the last 31 weeks. It's never an easy thing to do, a live Bible study. Uh, I do have notes. I should say that for the last two studies that I've done, I've had notes up until probably a year ago or so. I think perhaps during the Acts was the first time I started to use notes, but pre my study looking at Acts, I didn't have any notes. And therefore what you were getting was very much a rapid read and a rapid exegesis and a rapid explanation as to what the word of God has to say. Just one final thing, the term heretofore, or heretofore from verse 2 simply means before this time until now. I know there are archaic words in the King James Bible, and the best thing to do if you want to understand all of the archaic words is get hold of a Webster dictionary. Webster's dictionary, get hold of it, read it, and just check out what these words mean. There's no need to throw out the King James Bible. There's no need to tear out pages or cause yourself agony trying to work out what these old words mean. Just get an old Webster's dictionary from Amazon or eBay. They're pretty cheap to get hold of. Or go online, look up a King James Concordance website and find out what these words mean. So I will leave it, uh, leave that with you all. Ask the Lord God to bless this Bible study. And I pray that he will bless this and I pray that this will be well received by the brethren. And above all, it will be something to glorify our great God. Verse 14, the Holy Ghost, verse 14, and our Lord Jesus Christ, verse 14. And I ask him to bless this right here, right now, in the name of Jesus Christ, for his name's sake. Amen and amen.